there's a dating site for anti-vaxxers called Unjected. Unjected has been removed from the Apple App Store. It is the unvaccinated who are the problem, period, end of story. Frankly, we know that we can't trust the unvaccinated. It's the unvaccinated who are the threat. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo. Rest in peace, Wheezy. The Unjected Show, with your hosts, Shelby Thompson, Scott Armstrong, and Zach Brown. The Unjected Show is intended for an adult audience and may contain explicit material. User discretion is advised. Aloha. Aloha. How's it going, friends? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? You're in a different background, Scott. Everybody has different you backgrounds. Y'all are. Look at Shelby's background. You're the only, you got to get with the times. We got to get you a new background. I know. Zach, we're going to send you an injected green screen. Yeah. I'll put it up. I'm well, put explicit material behind me. <laughs> there you go. Just, Just that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, it's glad I'm glad to see you. I know that we had like a like a little break there. We were all healing and yeah. back at it now. Yeah. I mean it was uh I was down for the count for a minute, that's for sure. But uh me too. But um I took some ivermectin and just like was back to normal in a couple of days. Look at that. Isn't it amazing how ivermectin could make <laughs> you feel better? I did the same thing. I was taking ivermectin and bam, like back at it, not a problem. I know. It's amazing how that works. And I'm so excited about our guest today. Well, I, especially because I'm as like me being a female and a woman and a mother, like I think you, maybe you guys are going to have to, you're going to be learning some stuff today, but. You know, um, I've done some deep dives on the, the, the birthing industry in Western uh, hospital settings. And I, yeah, I mean, it's something that I am very much interested in. So yeah, definitely. Well, let's, let's bring him in. Let's bring him in. Our, uh, our guest uh, is Dr. Stuart Fishbein, uh, board-certified obstetrician, OBGYN, uh, who does a lot of work bringing the truth about the corruption of the industry, right? And then offering solutions, alternatives, home births, all that stuff. So, Dr. Fishbein, welcome. Is that a good characterization? What would you say? Thank you, Scott. I happen to be a hydroxychloroquine guy myself. But oh, that's there you go. That's win. Yeah, I, I took it once a week uh, all through the all through the lockdown. I don't even call it a pandemic because yep. right. none of us believe it was truly a pandemic. So exactly. <laughs> it's a good it's a good way to characterize it. You know, I mean, it was. Uh, I you know, I, I have a friend who's very adamant about the same thing, like calling it the lockdown, the lockdown era instead mm -hmm. of the COVID or the pandemic. It was like it was the, the era that we experienced this intense lockdown. And uh, yeah, the more you unpack it, I mean, we we talk about this stuff to infinity on this show but like you know what i mean like just the nature of what happened and good lord anyway anyway where yeah. where did um where did you get let's just get into your background like how did you get into uh obstetrics and like the maternal field and babies and and what was your inspiration for for doing so uh I could never have predicted where I would be today uh, when I first started out. I mean, I was a biology major in college and, you know, sort of like most 
undergrad students was really um, had no direction whatsoever where I was going to go. And a couple of my buddies were going to do uh, go to med school uh, or they were applying to med school. And I was already had all the prerequisites out of the way anyway. I had biochemistry and calculus and all that stuff I had done anyway because that was my major. And so I said, ah, I'll do that too. And sort of made my mother happy because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Jewish son. So I don't have a lot of choices in the world. Um, and so I went to medical school and I had no intention of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And of course, when you go to medical school, you're very naive and you're very uh, enthusiastic. Uh, but you have to make a real big decision um, in the third year of medical school. It's four year program. Uh, you have to start to think, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? And it's really a, a funny thing because most of the people at that point don't know what they want to do. But you have to pick something because you have to apply for residency programs into your third year or in your fourth year. And um, I had just come off hematology oncology, which was a um, depressing for me. It was really depressing. It was depressing. I understand the necessity of it, but it was a pediatric uh, hematology oncology service. And the next rotation Blood I did was cancer, right. That's what hematology oncology yeah, is. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forget. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's cancers. It's like leukemia, lymphoma, those mm -hmm. sorts of things. And these were kids that had it. And my next rotation was obstetrics. And instead of being up at three in the morning with a a little kid seizing or getting chemotherapy, I was up catching a baby. And I still remember the name of the first woman that who I assisted catching her baby. And of course, in those days, I didn't call it catching. I called it you know delivering. And mm -hmm. my 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 language has changed dramatically over the years because I've evolved from this very medicalized physician who came from a very good program uh, back in the early 80s when I trained. It was at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And, and uh, part of our, our residency, we spent four months at LA County USC Women's Hospital, which at that time uh, was the busiest hospital in the country. They were doing about 22,000 births a year, which yeah. breaks down to about 65 babies a day at that hospital. And we were there for four months every other day. So that's like 60 days. You can do the math. That's like 3,600 births that went through um, while we were there. And we're a small team uh, and we got to exposed to everything, including breaches and twins and things that we just considered them variation of normal. In fact, we used to compete to see who'd get to do the breach mom because we all wanted it. Because we, we, we didn't consider it to be a problem. And, you really got good at these things, but it was very medicalized. There was no relationship with the woman who's in labor. Most of them didn't speak English, and I spoke very little Spanish coming from Minnesota. Um, so it was we just were, it was a very mechanical. I uh, came out of residency, well trained. Uh, entered a private practice in Century City. I uh, shared space with five other guys, four other guys, but it really wasn't. Uh, uh, partnership. It was individual. So I was always solo practice. And there's some really good things about that. And for the most part, I think most of it was very good because uh, I got to be captain of my own ship. And But the downside was that you had to build your own practice from scratch. You didn't come out, get a salary, work for somebody, work a shift, which is what medicine has become now, which I think is a big detriment. Uh, so I hustled. And one of the things I did besides covering emergency rooms and working at free clinics and stuff was I was approached by some midwives to take their home birth transports. And I thought that uh, I would do that for mercenary reasons because I wanted to make money. But I probably, like anybody else back then, thought that home birth was crazy. I didn't know anything about midwifery. Uh, 
Um, I was that medicalized doctor that was standing there in full hazmat suit with you up in stirrups, you know, with blue drapes on your legs and washing off your bottom with iodine and catching your baby and cutting the cord almost immediately, showing you this beautiful thing that you just created and then walking across the room. Mm -hmm. You're breaking up just a You guys are all still there, right? Okay, yep, we oh, got you guys. Yeah. You're back. Can you hear me? Yep, we got no, you now. Yeah, there was a little, it cut out just a little bit. So you said uh, walking across the room. You're the type. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. I mean, I'm at a I'm at a Airbnb, so I'm not sure about the Wi-Fi here. But um, yeah, we I would set the baby down in the warmer, and and I thought that that was the way you did things. And so you came out of residency, sort of indoctrinated. Uh, if you went in with like a lot of young women go into it with the ideal that they want to come out and and be innovative and. and but it gets beat out of you um, over that eight-year period of time. Uh, so it takes a really strong person to, to not get indoctrinated. But I was, and I came out, I was very medicalized. Um, but one of the things that happened to me, I had the good fortune, like I said, of, of being asked by midwives to take their transports. And when they came in, they would just come in for an epidural. They didn't come in for emergency things. Rarely did that happen. I mean, those are the stories you hear in the media about the, the home birth gone wrong. But that's typical of everything. You only hear about the planes that crash. You don't hear about the ones that land safely anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, I got to spend some time sitting with the midwives while women were, were laboring. And I started to learn a new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I was open to it, I guess, partly because I was a solo practitioner. I didn't have pressure coming from anybody other than myself. Uh, and uh, after about a 10-year period of time, I started a collaborative practice with midwives in a hospital setting. And we had a very good thing going for about 15 years, but it's where I started to learn about uh, medical tyranny and sham peer review and uh, you know bullying going on in the hospital. Uh, they never really accepted us there. Uh, we had really good outcomes. Uh, but after about 15 years, they, they sort of banned the midwives. They banned VBAC, which is vaginal birth after cesarean. They banned breech delivery. And I had a choice to stay and fight them or to leave and go into the home birth world. And after 20, 28 years in a hospital setting, I left. And I spent the next 12 and a half years doing home birthing. And I was very lucky to do it. And I got bolder as time went on. And I started to actually question why does a diabetic need to be delivered in the hospital and induced at 37 or 38 weeks? Why does a hypertensive need to be uh, induced? Why can't breaches and twins just deliver naturally? Why do they have to go to the OR with an epidural and an IV? And the babies end up they're delivering them early and they end up in the NICU. And uh, it's very, very medicalized. And so, I, again, because I didn't have any masters, I was able to be open to the idea that I would try to do things differently. And... I got, you know, and I did, and then I started publishing papers about it, and then people asked me to go around and start teaching, and I started going to teach the breach and twin skills that are not being taught anymore in training programs, and the more I looked back and took a deep dive into the history of medicine, the more I saw, like, everything they told you was wrong. <laughs> I mean, you'd think they'd be right once in a while, but they're not. They're pretty much wrong on everything, and the organizations have been captured by big pharma and big money. And they advocate for their own self-survival. They're not really looking out for the doctors that belong to these organizations like the AMA or ACOG and, 
ACOG is the American College of OBGYN, and everyone knows what the AMA is. And the AMA, by the way, represents about 14 or 15 percent of physicians, and they're almost all academicians or, or residents. Most private doctors don't belong to the AMA. People don't know that. They think when the AMA, when the news, news media quotes the AMA, that they're, quote, they're, they're speaking for doctors. They're not speaking for doctors. They're speaking for the AMA. And the AMA makes most of its money from selling the uh, coding that doctors and hospitals use to get reimbursed. Mm -hmm. And so they're not even responsive to their members anymore. It's a, it's a sham organization. And so that, that's sort of, I got into this world and I really am for, fortunate for what I'm doing, quite happy. And now I'm not, taking, I'm not taking call anymore. After 40 years, it starts to wear on you. Wow. And I'm um, advocating for choice through our podcast and through teaching, uh, that sort of thing. And uh, that's how I guess you guys found me. So mm -hmm. I'm, really, I'm really happy to reach an audience that I wouldn't otherwise normally reach to talk yeah. about choices. You know, unlike the medical model, we don't condemn the medical model. I mean, I mock it sometimes because it deserves it. But, but you know, they, they're... Again, if, you, if you're confident in what you do, you're, you've, you, you feel comfortable admitting you don't know something. The medical model sees, sees pregnancy as, as illness, and they just don't know what to do when somebody tells them, you know, I really don't want to do that. And they get, they get freaked out. So I'm here to hopefully put out evidence in the world so that women can make an informed decision and families can make an informed decision about what to do because the hospital is not doing well. Mm -hmm. If you look at this, look at the numbers. I'm I'm monologuing again. I'm sorry, guys. I don't no, mean to be, I don't mean to be monologuing. I, and you had so many really amazing points, and you know, uh, our audience especially, you know, just because we're unvaccinated, we're you know, we're also just kind of like rejecting the system entirely, which would be the traditional way that yeah, that babies have been coming into the world, and with this hospital. Uh, system that has just taken over and and corrupted everything, and I would say that mo a lot of our women uh, on injected want to learn about home birth or want to have a home birth themselves through these you know like very self sufficient people. So you know this is a this is a total opportunity and blessing for us to have you here, and um, you know I I can relate personally to what you are saying with the fear that they try to instill into women that like what is happening to you is not natural and let's have this cascade of interventions that leads to this outcome that you know never needed to happen and and it wasn't until I had my a home birth that I realized you know even my hospital births that were okay you know they were okay but they were nothing in parallel in comparison to my home birth. And so I would just want nothing more for, for every woman to know that experience. So that's it. Yeah. I mean, growing, conceiving, growing a pregnancy and going into labor are primitive brain functions. So it's kind of the things you don't have to think about it. And, and when I try to dissect this from the beginning and people ask me these questions about why you're doing, I, I, I start, always start out talking about how other mammals give birth. And if you've ever had a cat or a dog or a horse, or you've ever watched the Nature Channel or anything else, you, you, you see that the, the, when a mammal is pregnant, she goes off to a quiet place and she goes off by herself. And if she's uncomfortable, she 
she moves, she paces, she rolls, she what does whatever she does. It's not a sterile procedure. They don't need sterile drapes and they don't need chucks underneath their bottoms. And and if they're hungry, they do something really amazing. They eat, and if they're thirsty, they drink, because they know that they need the nourishment. They know these things. They don't restrict. Nobody restricts your dog when in labor. You would never pick up the the dog food and the water off the floor when your dog is in labor. Um, and then when they're ready to give birth, they they lie down or they stand up, and the baby falls into the earth, or the straw, or the carpeting under under your bed, or wherever the cat's giving birth. And um, nobody rushes in to cut the cord. How come those babies don't bleed to death? Right. How come when the cord falls off, they don't just bleed out? Well, not only that. It? Also, it's 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 interesting that you bring this up. Like you could go back to like the 1770s or 1660s. People were giving birth. There's no way in hell that was sterile. That was littered with, I'm sure, germs. Whatever environment that they were in, there was no way they could sterilize it like modern medicine does. And you know, we're here. It's not designed to be sterile. The problem in those days was that they didn't understand germ theory. <laughs> and they were doing vaginal exams on, with bare hands, going from one patient or, or one cadaver to the next patient. And, <laughs> and only, only it's an interesting story. If you look up a guy named Ignaz Semmelweis, um, his story he was, was that he... was like persecuted, too, like when he invented, like, antibiotics, oh, yeah. or like, like hand sanitizer oh, yeah. and stuff. Like, they was like... He was All like, he did was wash his hands people, between yeah. the, the cadaver lab and... Yeah. And the um, and catching babies, and um, he dropped his purpural sepsis rate, which is like postpartum infection rate, um, to almost none. And and when he uh, was invited to speak at the uh, you know the assembly where they do these things in Europe, um, they actually um, thought that he was crazy, and they lured him <laughs> into an insane asylum where he died. Uh, um, no, being insane. For washing uh, his hands. This is typical of. Oh, it's it's a. <laughs> We've come a long we're way. We're just trying to. We've come a long way. the narrative. Yes. Yes. Now, now they're saying you yeah, must wash he, your hands. He, he was he was telling people to try to do something. His results were really good, and they and they pilloried him for it, and wow. they, they they essentially killed him. Wow. Um, but anyway, uh, that guy should be like the Messiah of the COVID cult. Like he was persecuted <laughs> and executed for. Washington has invented hand Yeah, and you know, usually what history will do is prove these people to be right, almost always. You know, I mean, you, you go back, I don't know, you could go way back in time, but even Galileo was was excommunicated or something because he talked about the earth going around the sun instead of the other way around. I mean, uh, so anyway, and so, so, and when the babies come out, nobody, like I said, nobody separates the cord and nobody ever takes the baby away from the mother. I mean, I, I lovingly say to people, say, try taking a baby chimpanzee away from its mother and see what happens to you. Right? You won't, you won't last, you won't last too long. Um, but, but, uh, and when, and when a predator approaches in nature, or when little kids run into the bedroom or wherever the cat's laboring or the dog, um, the dog will put out hormones that will stop the labor so the dog can get up and run away to a place where it feels safe. Mm-hmm. And as long as when safety is is there, then nature itself understands this. And in this way, ensures the best chance of survival. So um, when uh, we take a woman who is a mammal and all the instincts are the same, you grow a baby, you don't think about it. It's like breathing or digestion. You don't have to think about it. Can you imagine if you had to think about breathing? Yeah. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out, breathe oh. in. I mean, you, you, you would go nuts. Okay? But um, when... Uh, but we do, you know, medicine, I mean, growing a baby is the same way. And so 
when you start to think about actually screw it up. Like if you have to come give a speech or something, you might hyperventilate or you might get diarrhea when normally your intestines are working just fine. So your higher brain can override the normal functions and that's what happens. And that's why labor spaces out when a, when a mammal is stressed. So what do we do to the normal human female? As soon as she's in labor, we tell her to come to the hospital. It's like the worst thing you can do mm-hmm. to come to the hospital too early. Yeah. Because everything they do to you from the moment you get in the car to drive there to the moment you put your baby in the car seat to drive home mm-hmm. is antithetical to nature's design. There's nothing they do for you that is, and I'm not talking about the women that really need the hospital. Let's, we, every once a show, we have to do a caveat like that. We're not yeah, yeah, yeah. condemning all, but we're talking about the 80 or 85% of women who don't really have anything wrong with them. Yep. The medical model always thinks you have something wrong with them. Right. The American College of OBGYN state makes a statement like this, and there are people out there who believe this. It says pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition, mm-hmm. but it isn't until it becomes one. Mm-hmm. And when you go to the hospital, they do all these things to you that interrupt the labor. And so as you talked about um, there earlier, Shelby, you talked about uh, the cascade of interventions, and it does truly happen. We have gone from a cesarean section rate in the United States in 1970 of 5% to one that's over 30% now. That's a 500% increase. And the rate of cerebral palsy and all the things that they were going to prevent by, by modern medicine have not gotten better. Maternal mortality is probably higher. Neonatal mortality is not, is, we're 45th in the world, if you believe these numbers from the yeah, that was one of the know, questions the I was going to ask. I was going to ask you is that like that's one of the most shocking things that I learned about when I first started looking into this topic was that out of all like you know first world developed countries, the United States is consistently like second to last, third to last in terms of infant mortality. And like yeah, so like I was going to definitely ask you like what your thoughts are on that specifically. Like I know you're kind of laying it out big picture, but man, like that that, that was startling to me, and I was like that can't possibly be true. But I mean, yeah. It's just so emblematic. No, it, well, it is true. And, and you know, they're going to, and a lot of times it, they, they, they have no self-awareness, the medical model. They can't look at themselves. You know, the idea, they, they criticize people who do things differently. But, you know, about 1.4% of women are having babies at home. The fact that we have a C-section rate of 32% and that we are 45th in the world is not because 1.4% of babies are being born at home. It's all, it's all the problem in the hospital. And these things have all come under the watch of academia and the industrialization of medicine. And when there's a problem, this, I, again, you guys might remember this. I know you're all younger than me, but you, you know, it wasn't that long ago. It was 2008 or nine when we had the um, mortgage crisis mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. and the housing crisis mm-hmm. and that all fell. And yeah. the reason that happened in a simple version is because the government said to these banks, you need to loan money to everybody. You, you can't discriminate. Even if they can't pay it back, you need to loan money to them, which is sort of a silly business model. <laughs> the people that were behind that were generally the ones that ran the committees, and that was Barney Frank and Chris Dodd. And you may remember those names. Um, and when the, when the crash happened, the government said, okay, well, we're going tr- to fix this now. So who do they put in charge of fixing it? Barney Frank and Chris Dodd. So this is the same thing. We have, we have they, they break it. And then they say, we're going to come in and fix it. But they don't know how. Because they can't, because they, because they are based in fear. And they project this fear onto the American public. Now, some people are just scared. And, some, and sometimes they use fear as a great manipulator. It's a great way to get people. You saw it. You talk mm-hmm. about it probably all the time. 
when you talk about the vaccine thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They use fear to motivate you to do what they want you to do. And fear doesn't work well in labor, as we just talked about with mammals, but it also, it, it also is not, it, it, it makes for a really bad experience. Mm-hmm. We have generations of women who have who been told that their body doesn't work, and if it's not for modern medicine, they wouldn't, we, would, we would all be dead. And then you look at, the, look at the rates of interventions, the rates of epidurals, the rates of induction, the rates of de- postpartum depression. You look at the chronic illnesses in children and the rising rates of chronic illnesses in children. And yeah, everybody says it's multifactorial, and of course it is. Uh, is it vaccines? Is it GMO? Is it uh, heavy metals? Is it, is it uh, C- uh, C-section rate rising? I mean, correlation and causation, we all, we all know about that. But, mm-hmm. but still, something isn't right. And the same people that have gotten us here are very happy with the way things are going because somebody's getting very, very wealthy uh, with the system that we have. But the outcomes for the mothers and the babies are not, are not good. They're just not good. And they're worse in other parts of the world. There are places in the world that have a 70%, 80% C-section rate. And what is that doing to the next generation down the line? What is happening to our species when we start to intervene all these times and we're starting to change in the last 100 years from something yeah. that had been going on for eons? And nobody asked the question. That's the biggest, that's a huge thing that I talk about when I, when I think is about stage one thinkers of doing something because it feels good or sounds good or because you're making money off it without ever asking the, the ultimate next question, which is, and then what happens? And you can look through the medical history and you can see it. Let's give heavy metals. Let's mm-hmm. inject them. Let's use them. I mean, they had teething powder for babies in the, turn of, in the early 19th, 20th century that had mercury in it. When I used to get a cut, my mom would put mercurochrome on it. <sighs> I mean, it killed the bacteria, but why did it kill the bacteria? Because it had mercury in it. And, and they thought that that was a good idea. And then they came up with thalidomide. And then they came up with diethylstilbestrol. And then they came up with the food pyramid. And then they came up with uh, seven out of ten doctors prefer Winston cigarettes. And then they came up with um, Vioxx. That one was they... true, though. That one was science back then. That one was true. The fluoride, this, everything. Right, and and then they, and and again, a lot of this was done to for financial gain. I mean, the whole medical community took over the birthing world. They in the, the early in the early twentieth century, they vilified midwives. You know, I don't I don't know the full history of that, so I don't want to act like I do. But I have taken a deep dive into the heavy metals and the vaccines and those sorts of things, and. And the, and the history of my profession where we've gone, like I said, we've had a 500% increase in cesarean with nothing to show for it. And some of these other things that, that made that happen were, were stage one thinking things like continuous fetal monitoring. They never tested it. They just yeah. thought, well, if we monitor babies' heart rates all through labor, we'll get rid of cerebral palsy. Mm. But there was no test for that. But somebody made a lot of money selling machines every yeah. single doctor's office and every single hospital in the country. And now yeah. they're too dependent on it. The risk managers and the lawyers won't let them get rid of it, even though the data doesn't show that it does anything good. And the only thing it does is raise the C-section rate. Yeah. yeah. And to me, to me, the C-section thing just comes down to the fact that these hospitals are businesses. It's like a hotel. Like they need to have people in the beds. They need to have people outside of the beds. Like 
what's the use of them having a patient in a bed for, you know, going through a natural birthing process. It could take to like, up to like a week when they could just, uh, you know, get, induce it and just have it be done the next day. Also like, uh, you know, the doctors, the doctors are just regular people. Let's say he's got a golf appointment that afternoon. They're going to do everything they can to get that baby out that morning. Right. So it revolves around the schedule of the doctor. So these are not, uh, these are not in the best interest of the mother, let's say. Oh yeah. No, no. The, 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 again, I'm telling you, if you, I've asked people this, I'm not talking about coming in for testing or, or like I said, maternal fetal medicine doctors do some good things. They over test and they, and they plant seeds of doubt early on. They'll tell a 35 year old woman at 10 weeks that she's 35. And now she's got a lot of things to worry about, which is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's the inception model. If you ever saw the movie inception, um, at the beginning of the movie, they're sitting on a rooftop trying to figure out how they're going to plant this idea in Cillian Murphy's head, whatever character he was. And, I think that's his name, um, the actor who played the, the son. And they said, well, you can't just tell somebody that because they know where it comes from. And then somebody says, well, what do you mean? And he says, don't think about elephants. Yeah. And then, of course, you can't not think about elephants. It's just the way it works. <laughs> so when you start to tell a woman early on that, you know, she's too tall, she's too small, or her hips are small, or, you know, she's over 35, or she's got hypothyroidism, which is well controlled, but it doesn't matter. Everything is high risk in the medical model. And mm -hmm. they don't think about the psychology of what that does to yeah. a woman who's now anxious the entire time. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to so many women in both models. And I, again, like I can say this because I was that guy who did plant those seeds of doubt because I thought I was doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, but you talk to these women and most of them come out of their obstetri obst obstetrician's office after a prenatal visit, which lasts, you know, what, seven or eight minutes long. Um, and they feel worse than when they came in. They're more fearful. They're more scared. Uh, the midwifery model is completely different. And maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the medical, the, the, the medical model just is it's too ingrained. There's too much money to be had. And they're, they're not going to let go of it. And so it's going to be up to the women in our country to get educated and then demand these things. And it's really time to make the hospital a little more uncomfortable and they, and they, and they to stop bullying you. Yeah. And, you know, cause everything, and pretty much everything they do there is a violation of the basic tenets of medical ethics of, you know, any kind of coercion is never acceptable and skewing your counseling to get somebody to go down the path you want them to go is unethical. And yet it's done every day. Oh, breech baby. You can't have a breech baby. It's too dangerous. But it's not. Oh, you have twins. They have to be induced at 36 weeks because otherwise they'll die. That's not true either. Hmm. Um, so, but this is, what, this is what they're told. And I think my colleagues are really guilty of it. And some of them are guilty of it because they're obtuse. And some are guilty because they're lazy. And some are guilty. But yeah, I mean, by lazy, I mean they, they don't dig deeper. They mm -hmm. learn what they learned in residency and they come out and they practice that way the rest of their life. Or they know it's wrong, but they do it anyway because they're forced to by the economics or their, their group situation or their call situation or they're an employee working for a hospital where their fiduciary duty, their ethical responsibility is, is now um, conf conflicted. And so they may want to give a woman a chance for a vaginal birth after a cesarean, but their health uh, system doesn't allow it. Mm. So they can't tell them that, oh, by the way, you, you can have a VBAC, it's a reasonable choice, because then they'll get yelled at by their employer. 
So they have to not mention it, or they have to skew their counseling to tell them uh, things to get them to go down the path that they want them to take. And this is all too rampant in, 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 our, in our world. And you guys, you know, it's in other parts of medicine and other parts of our life as well. I just happen to be an expert in this very narrow area of what we're doing in, preg in, in pregnancy. Do you think it's because, uh, as far as like reg and in the medical community, a lot of there's a lot of regulations and standards. It's very standardized uh, uh, domain, and it's it's a very uh, uh, solid thing. It's very hard to crack. It's a very powerful uh, force. Do you think it's because the pendulum swung way too far the other way as far as to to standardize and make sure nobody's doing anything that is malevolent? Do you think it was initially like all these standards and, and all of these these um, demands were, were good-hearted at first to stop people from being malicious, or is it was it just a money grab? Oh, I, I think I think it's both. I, I you know that's a that's a weak it's a weak answer. I hate giving that answer, but I, I think there were people in administrative positions who love algorithms. They love having everything predictable, if A, then B, and if B, then this way or that way. And they want everyone to follow that algorithm. Because as things get bigger, you can't individualize anymore. And one of my biggest pet peeves is um, that nurses go to nursing school for a good long time. And they come out well-trained, and then they have to take their exams, and then they have to get, you know, then they get a job, and they work for somebody. And the doctors go through eight years or more of training in obstetrics, four years of medical school, four years of residency, and maybe even a fellowship. And they come out and they go to work for an organization that tells them how to practice. And I just can't imagine anybody who has the sort of shepherd mentality, who wants to be the captain of the ship, loving what they do when they're, when they're, they go, they're highly trained and then you come out, you get licensed to practice, but then they tell you how to practice. Mm. And you can only do things a certain way. It's got to be really frustrating for the doctors and nurses that are working in that system. And I know that burnout is high and that suicide rates are high. They did a survey of young physicians uh, and obstetricians. No, actually, it was just all physicians. The American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. They looked at, I think, 35,000 uh, doctors, um, and they found that 10% uh, of them had contemplated suicide over the last three years. Mm. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I don't know these numbers, uh, these statistics. I, people throw statistics at you, and, and I don't really know what to make of it. But, but, I, but it is frustrating to me to see that these people come out well-trained. They've gone through all the training. They get licensed. They get board certified. And then they come out. And then some administrator and some risk manager um, who's working nine to five is telling them how they have to practice. And everyone has to have the same thing, which is why when women come to the hospital, they all get treated the same. Mm -hmm. They all get treated the same. They all have to go in the bathroom and pee in a cup and change into a hospital gown. <laughs> they all have to get in bed and be put on the monitors and sign some forms that they haven't read. You know, and, and just signing consent, by the way, signing a consent form is not informed consent. Mm. And another, oh. another good saying is higher chance of something happening does not mean it's high risk. But everything mm. is high risk in the medical model. Um, and, but it doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning unless you know what the denominator is. But they don't. 
you know, they'll say something like, you know, the risk of this happening is high. Well, how high is it? Well, it's twice as high as if we would have done this last week. Okay, twice as high of what number? Yeah. Well, they don't know. It's just twice as high. Mm -hmm. But if something happened one in a million times and now it happens one in 500,000 times, that's twice as high. Mm -hmm. But it's still zero. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an administrative top-heavy state and administrators have to administrate because they keep their job. I mean, I have an anecdote from when my mom was a teacher. She was in a school district when she first started teaching that had one principal and had, it was in the 70s and had the highest enrollment it ever had because that was the, like the peak of the baby boom generation going into, and she was a fourth or fifth grade teacher. And by the time she finished 20 years later, they had fired the music teacher, they had fired the gym teacher, and they had one principal and six assistant principals for an enrollment class that was 20% less than it was 20 years earlier. And this gave me, this, this is maybe part of the reason that I, I know these things, is because I saw my mom really frustrated about this sort of stuff. Um, she could not, you know, she would, she would talk about it. And she would say, yeah, we, 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 we just built a brand new auditorium with the money at the same time we fired the gym and music teacher because we had money in the building budget, but not in the education budget. And if they didn't spend the money in the building budget, then they weren't going to get that kind of money next year. And then, of course, a year later, they, they, that school district went out of business. Mm -hmm. And they sold it to a private school who, who bought a really nice building with a nice auditorium in it. And this is an example of when you see cuts going on, even in politics, who gets cut? You know, the guys that actually do the work are the ones that get cut. The administrative people never get cut. Mm -hmm. um, and hospitals are really top heavy in administrators. In order to justify their job, they have to come up with silly rules. And I, 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 we could spend the whole podcast and I could start naming off silly things that they do in the hospital that don't make sense. Like I said, changing you into a hospital gown. Yeah. Wow. Why do they have to change you into a hospital gown? What is it, <laughs> by the way, what is it, guys, what does it signify wearing a hospital gown? Sickness. That you're sick and you're, yeah. you need yeah, help. You're a patient, yeah, you're a patient, you're sick. Yeah. Why does a pregnant woman have to wear anything? Why can't she wear her own jammies? Why do, but, but they do that. And mm -hmm. women don't even know to ask, why am I changing into this hospital gown? Why am I peeing into a cup? I'm not complaining of any bladder symptoms. Why am I peeing into a cup? Yeah. Well, we have to check urine for this or that and the other thing. No, you really don't. Mm -hmm. And the no, reason they check their urine for everything is because there's a billable code for that. Mm -hmm. Because, and how do I know that they don't have to check for it? Because when you give birth at home, you don't pee in a cup when you're in labor. You don't get your blood drawn when you're in labor. You get an IV when you're in labor. You don't get monitored when you're in labor. But everything I just mentioned, there's a... I kind of broke up a little bit there. Oh, you back? There he is. Okay. Yeah, there sometimes you guys, you phase yep. out. No, we're good. We're good. We're pushing hard here. And then, yeah, that's crazy. It's, they're just so tell, like... So tell me a little bit about, about your thoughts about your thoughts on, on, on this sort of thing. I mean, obviously, Shelby, you've been through yeah, it. Shelby, go for it. Uh, you know, I everything that you're saying it resonates. It's just so much. And it kind of makes me like like angry that like more people don't realize what's happening. Like the business of being born really is so true. Which is and a good movie, by the way. Everybody it was a that. great movie. Yeah. And, you know, for, when I was a first time mom, I, of course, I just did what I was told and I went in line and I, I did the tests and I did the, um, 
going to the hospital and I had an epidural. And then my, my second was breach. And I was kind of instilled with this, that fear, like that you described that, no, well, you're not allowed to have a home birth and you are not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do this. And, and you're going to be a C-section. They're just telling me what it was definitively. And I was like, no, I don't want that. You know, and even just for rejecting even, even that just saying, I, well, can we turn the baby around or can we do something else? You're looked at kind of like you're an alien. They just, they don't understand anybody who uh, doesn't just come in as a patient. And, and so, you know, by the time my third, I, I wanted to have a home birth, especially because I being injected, I wanted to be as far away from the hospital as I could possibly uh, get. And like you had said, being in my natural environment where I was undisturbed, everything was easier. It was like half the time. And, and I never had any like baby blues afterwards or felt like mm. I was uh, detoxing from epidural or had like the sore back. It was like everything was just that I experienced that first time around. It didn't happen. And then, you know, just being being in your own environment and being with your baby and just that experience, it, it changed my life forever. And, and so it's, it's sad to see that like billable codes for dumb stuff literally has changed the process in which we channel souls to the earth. Mm. And that's shameful that we've done that as a, like a species, you know, we should honor childbirth uh, for what it is. And, and so, you know, I think like for the, maybe for women listening that are maybe not mothers yet and that want to have children, what would you say to them who are, who they're going against the system and they're maybe not going to have, you know, routine testing or whatever? Like, how do you, how would you recommend they exit the system? Um, of course, besides just bravery. <laughs> well, I got, I got a lot on that. Um, the interesting thing you, you talked about, uh, um, that it's sort of medical, it's very medicalized because medical, the med more medical stuff you do, the more you get reimbursed. Yeah. You know, you go in for a consult with your maternal fetal medicine specialist at 20 weeks for an ultrasound, and they may find everything is normal except one little thing. And that one little thing is meaningless, and they know it's meaningless, and they'll say to you it's meaningless. But I, and then they'll say at the end, but I want to see you back here in four to six weeks. Right. So that gets back to the inception thing. All you heard, what said, they, he wants to see me back. Why does he want to see me back? What's going on? What does he want? If we were to change the way we looked at, med at, at obstetrics as not a medical problem, to not call a woman who's pregnant a patient, unless she has something that goes wrong with her, that would be, that would be a, a big start for women to not consider or not let their doctors tell them that this is a medical issue and let it until it is. And the way, the best way that you can have it, we don't have enough midwives to go around, but I would tell you that the midwifery model looks at pregnancy as wellness, that it's a normally bodily function, and they accept uncertainty. And the medical model hates uncertainty. And in their zeal to control nature's chaos, they create all kinds of chaos. <laughs> but they're okay with that because we broke it, we'll fix it, as opposed to not being, you know, not being in control. It's about that. So if you, if you started out, even if you say, listen, I'm home birth isn't for me and I'm going to go to my OB 
And maybe it's an OB that has a really good reputation, or maybe it's an OB that's just been doing your pap smear for the last 10 years. But I'm going to go to an OB and uh, see my OB, and I'm going to go to my eight-minute prenatal visits, and I'm going to do all the things they tell me to do. You could still have some prenatal visits with a midwife. You could pay a midwife to sit down a few times during the pregnancy and do an hour-long visit with you where they're going to do preventative care. They're going to talk about nutrition. They're going to talk about rest. They're going to talk about stress. They're going to talk, how's your relationship? They're going to talk about, um, you know, sunlight and exercise. And, and by the time, when, in that model, when you spend an hour a visit with a person, after two or three visits, it's, it's, it doesn't take very long to get through the medical stuff. And then you just talk, sort of like when you guys were greeting each other when you first started, you know each other so well, you just, just have conversations and you just talk about stuff and it makes you feel good. And then you're bathing your baby in happy hormones, dopamine, oxytocin, uh, endorphins, as opposed to feeling worried all the time where you're bathing your baby in adrenaline and cortisol and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, can't, you know, baby's developing inside of you. The baby knows everything you're feeling. Mom and baby have this beautiful symphony of hormones and other things, you know, there may be electromagnetic things, who knows? But nature designed the system to work the way it does. And when we interfere in it, there's always going to be consequences. We may not recognize them right away, but there will always be consequences. Now, sometimes you need uh, that intervention because something goes wrong. And the beauty of the midwifery model is that because midwives are the true experts in pregnancy, Doctors are experts in problems in surgery. That's how we're trained. But since midwives are experts in, real, in, in, in normal pregnancy, then they're very, very quick to recognize when something isn't normal. Mm-hmm. If you live in the same house all the time and you come home every night and you open the door one time and the chair in the front hall is ooh, three inches from where it normally is, you'd recognize that right away. You don't know what's wrong. Was there an earthquake? Did somebody come in the house? Did the dog hit it? I mean, but you know something isn't right. This is, this is a, sort of a simple analogy to how midwives understand birth. They know what's normal. And when it's normal, they leave it alone. And when you leave it alone, if you compare similar cohorts of women in the medical model versus the midwifery model, um, your, your outcomes are going to be universally better in the midwifery model. You're going to have lower rates of uh, C-section, lower rates of intervention, uh, lower rates of postpartum depression, lower episiotomy rates, lower perineal trauma rates, uh, better bonding rates, better breastfeeding rates. And, and again, do we, need, do we need papers out there that say that? Well, there are. But what, is your, what does your gut tell you as a woman? What does your gut tell you? If you can get rid of fear, it's a beautiful thing. And because your audience is different than the ones I usually talk to, I'm assuming there are probably some overlap. But there's a famous thing that, that my partner, Bliss, you taught me years ago um, in uh, about the analogy with the weddings. And maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. You guys, any of you heard this what, analogy? I don't think so. I don't think Scott or Zach might have. I think maybe no. Shelby might have heard it. But okay. in a woman's life, I mean, this is simplifying it, but in a woman's life, probably the two most important events of her life are her wedding day and the birth of her children. Mm. And we all know, by the way, that weddings, half of them end up not working out so well, but the birth of your children is something that a woman remembers till the day she dies. Uh, even when she can't remember their name, she'll still remember the event because that's the way your brain works. So for your wedding, you plan everything. You pick the napkins, you pick the dresses, you pick the cake, you pick the food, you pick the venue, you, you invite people that you love. 
um, you you pick the you know invitations and you and you spend oodles of money. I mean, it's all relative to where you are in life. I mean, some people will spend ten thousand dollars, other people speak, you know spend a million dollars. But you spend a lot of money on a wedding. But for your pregnancy, which is the other major event in a woman's life, you have an insurance card or you have Medicaid. And you just say, well, this guy's been doing my pap smear for 10 years or this, she's been, uh, you know, she's on the, she's, she sounds like a, a good person. She's in the book. I mean, I'm dating myself. I don't have a book anymore. It's all online. But, but, you know, they look online and they get a name and they go in because that, they take Blue Shield. So they go in and they, they get a provider. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the way it works. We don't invest money into this event because we treat it as a medical problem and because I'm paying for insurance or my employer is paying for insurance or the state is paying for insurance, I'm just gonna use my insurance card. Mm -hmm. So the analogy is this, if they had insurance for wedding and you paid a certain amount of money every month from when you're 18 years old and now you're 28 years old, you're getting married and you have insurance, your wedding is covered, but you don't get to pick the napkins and you don't get to pick the venue and you don't get to have the chicken, you can only have the fish. And they invite people to your wedding that you don't like. Um, nobody would do that. I'd love so that it's, analogy. Yeah, it's, it, nobody would do that. So the point being is that if we, we have to start thinking of pregnancy as a life event and not a medical problem. Mm. And, and, and blessed be the caretakers who deal with you when you do have to develop a medical problem. Mm-hmm. But the idea that every woman is a problem waiting to happen, which is how my brethren look at it, mm-hmm. is, is detrimental in so many ways, guys. It, it's just, it, it's, it's not good for the, the species to, to think of things like that. Mm-hmm. It's, we're, you know, women are designed to do that. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's yeah. an awesome thing. Yeah, it really is. But we're, I think it's yeah, really just—it's really—it's a scary thing for a lot of people to disassociate uh, or just detach from the pillar that the Western medical establishment has been propped up as. It's like, no, you can actually trust your own body. You can actually trust people who are operating outside of the system, you know. But it's like a leap of faith for a lot of people, and so you know, having these conversations is so important. I mean, nature designed—nature designed the system to work beautifully. Mm-hmm. And when you, again, I've said this before: when you start to mess with Mother Nature, there's going to be consequences. And, and, the, and the medical model, one of my sayings that I say all the time is really all that matters to the medical model is a live baby in the bassinet. And how the baby gets in the bassinet is not their concern. And what happens to that baby's health, short-term and long-term, is really not their concern. And what happens to that mother and her mental health and her physical health, and, and that is not their concern. And what happens to that mother's future babies is not their concern. So in other words, when you do a section for a breech mom, for a term breech baby who was never given an opportunity or, or options, you may, you may decrease the chance of, of a bad thing happening by about one in a thousand compared to head down babies. But you've now put all her future babies at risk because now she has to deal with the whole VBAC issue. But they don't, they don't look downstream. They only look at the immediate thing because that's the way that they were trained and that's the way the system looks at it and they don't look at the mother's psyche and and how that can affect your child rearing how that affects your marriage how that affects none of that stuff is really taught 
to medical students and residents. It's just not. It wasn't taught to me. And I can speak from this simply because I actually spent 28 years doing that. It was a slow evolution. It wasn't, there was no sliding door moment for me to go from the medicalized model I, I had when I came out of training to suddenly being the, the person who's speaking to you now. It was a long process and every, every week or month I learned new stuff. And I hear these, I hear people write to me all the time and I hear these stories. And, and so that's where, that's where we are. We, we need to look at pregnancy in a different way because it's a glorious thing. It's really, it really is. And um, it, it, if you leave it alone, it works really well. And that's, again, that's what the women of America have to realize. And they have to start demanding changes or demanding uh, options from their doctors. It's almost as if they're going in better educated than their doctors are. Yeah. Wow, which is a lot, and of, it's, like a lot of our listeners, they walk into the pediatrician's <laughs> office a lot more informed than the pediatrician and this and that around vaccines and all kinds of stuff, right? You know, and like, we'll walk in and, with and, and then listen, family members. And then listen and, to, like, no, no Redesivir. Nope, sorry, not to play that game. So. Yeah, and then listen to how the doctor responds. Yeah. Like I said, a confident person is not afraid to admit that they don't know something. Mm -hmm. But if the doctor responds by scoffing, or the doctor responds by rolling their eyes, or the doctor responds by saying, are you doctor Googling again? You know, that sort of the condescending <laughs> oh. little statement, then, then that should run away from that person. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I would tell, I would, again, I feel very strongly about this, and because I, I don't have any masters, I can say it openly. Any doctor who recommends to a pregnant lady that they get six vaccines while they're pregnant, flu, COVID, Tdap, which is three vaccines, and now the RSV vaccine, um, any doctor that recommends you get vaccinated in pregnancy, you should, you, that doctor should, uh, you know, I, I guess we don't disbar doctors, but you should run away from that doctor as fast as possible because none of those products have ever been tested, as your listeners well know, uh, in a randomized placebo-controlled trial for safety, mm -hmm. and you and and none of the, and, and by the way, giving five vaccines, five different three shots, five vaccines at 28 weeks, I mean, what's the synergistic effect of that? Mm -hmm. Nobody yeah. knows. We know that there's aluminum in the DTAP shot. Mm -hmm. We know there's potentially mercury in flu shot, depending on if it's a single dose vial or if it's a multi-dose vial. But we know that. And then there's all this other gobbledygook in there as well. None of that has ever been tested for safety in anybody, let alone pregnant women. And there's something called the precautionary principle, which has been in medicine throughout time, sort of like they threw, they threw out the idea that natural immunity was, was better than, uh, was, is now worse than vaccine immunity. Yeah, for, the, for all through time, natural immunity was, was the gold standard. Mm -hmm. And then in the last three years, they threw it out. So they're doing the same thing here. They're, they're throwing out the precautionary principle, which is you don't give untested substances to pregnant women and lactating women. You just don't do that. And, yeah. the, and, the, and the American College of OBGYN is all in, still recommending COVID shots for pregnant women. It's just beyond belief. And don't even it's absurd. So how do, you, how do you respect those people? How do you, if, they, if they lie to you and they lie to you consistently, you can't keep going back to them mm -hmm. and saying, and, and then trusting them again. Or, or you, or then you're responsible. Yeah. Can I ask you one question on your thought? What's your thought on Rogan? It's your show. <laughs> you can ask me anything. <laughs> What's your thought on Rogan? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I am not for antenatal Rogan, but there, yeah. but people have to know 
that that there's a slight risk of being uh, immunized. But they never, by the way, Rogan was never tested for the 28-week Rogan shot yeah. For, yeah. For, for any um, efficacy or anything like that. They don't, they don't know that it does anything good or, or not. They didn't test it. And I got a lot of information on that from uh, Sarah Wickham's book on RH disease explained, it's called. And it's a really good book. Her name's Sarah Wickham. You can look her up on Amazon. Um, and then after birth, I mean, there is some value. But again, it's hard to know because you can't really predict who's going to get sensitized. Right. Um, and if you get sensitized, which means that your partner is RH positive, you're RH negative, it really doesn't matter whether you're OA or AB or B or whatever, but it's the RH negative part. And if you get, and baby happens to inherit the RH positive gene from their father, so that baby's RH positive. If some of baby's blood mixes with mom in enough of a, an amount, and that amount is, we don't really know. Um, and we don't really know why some women get sensitized and other women don't. But if you do get sensitized in subsequent pregnancies, you may have a real problem with that baby. Yeah. So. The postpartum rogam makes sense, but of course you guys are all going to nod because you know the problem with it is it's made from pooled blood products and they're not screening it for who, who donates. Mm. So yeah. now you have this, you never had that issue before really. Yeah. It wasn't really a, a thought before, but now it becomes another issue where people are declining it. And in our world, uh, the home birth world and the midwifery world, a lot of women are given informed consent and they'll choose to decline it. And they're willing to accept that risk. Where in the medical world, they'll make you feel like you can't possibly not take the Rogam because right. you're gonna you're gonna kill all your future babies. You know, it's the same sort of thing with vitamin K and and the erythromycin in the eyes. I mean, those those are two of the dumbest. Well, the dumbest thing of all is hepatitis vaccine for a newborn. But but you know, putting that aside, yeah. um, everybody thinks babies should get vitamin K because there's this thing called vitamin K deficiency bleeding. Doc, Which can I interject right happens, real quick? The incidents... I have to, I have to, I have yeah. to jump. Um, I have to keep talking though. Keep run this through, Scott and, and yeah, Michelle, yeah, because yeah. I'm going to come back to this. I want to listen to the rest of what uh, the doc has to say. So this is very interesting. I'm really glad that that uh, we had you on, and, and thank you for your time, sir. Thanks, Zach. Peace out. Zach. See you guys later. Is, yeah. <laughs> okay. So vitamin K. Um, there's a, there's a serious thing called vitamin K deficiency bleeding, and and, but, the, but the incidence is about six per 100,000. And if a baby gets it, they can, they can die. They can get really sick, they can die. But it's six per 100,000. If you break that down, it's about one in 16,000 and change. Okay, so nobody asked the question, again, stage one thinking, we're gonna give vitamin K to 16,000 babies to prevent one outcome. There was just something that came out today, by the way, that they, you have to give COVID shots to kids under five. You have to give 33,000 kids have to get a COVID shot to prevent one hospitalization. Yes. Right. Something really ridiculous. Yeah, but yeah, but there's, a, there's it, a similar adult study that determined 42,000 uh, injections to save one uh, to save one hospitalization. But then out of those, you would have 18 SAEs, severe adverse events. Oh. So the, the net harm of the shots. And this is, this is a study from a couple of years ago. Yeah, something just came out recently. But, but back to vitamin K. So you're giving... You're giving 15,999 babies something that they don't need to prevent one bad outcome. But then here's the question that, that you know, what we call a stage two thinker or a secondary thinker would, would come up with is, well, if vitamin K is so important for babies, how come they're born vitamin K deficient? Mm. How come nature didn't figure out a way 
to give babies vitamin K. So maybe, just maybe, there's a reason they're supposed to be vitamin K deficient in the first week or two of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could come up with all kinds of theories. One theory is that they're forming little teeny blood vessels in their brain and their heart and in their liver and other things like that as they're still, because they're still forming all these things. And maybe the blood isn't supposed to be thick and clot. Maybe it's supposed to be watery and, and not clot. And again, that's a very simplistic viewpoint of what vitamin K does. But nature isn't stupid. Man is stupid. <laughs> right? Yeah. So think about that for a second. Um, you know, and if you're going to give vitamin K, first of all, there's a black box warning against giving vitamin K intramuscularly. You're supposed to be given sub-Q. But in babies, they give it intramuscularly. Mm. And I've asked several people why they do that, and they don't have an answer. Because the, if you read the package insert, there's a little black box at the top that says don't give it intramuscularly because it can cause anaphylaxis. Um, but that's what they do that anyway. And they do it when a baby's an hour old. This so, is, and vitamin K doesn't come just vitamin K. It's got other stuff in it. It doesn't have any heavy metals as far as I know, but it has, you know, whatever those things are that they stick in there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the names of them, but they're chemicals. They're hard to pronounce sometimes. And, and it's in there. And you're giving this newborn baby something that, that it really probably doesn't need, that's nature designed to be perfect. And we think we can do better. It's the hubris of man that <laughs> thinks that, you know, and it can't predict who's going to get vitamin K de- deficiency bleeding. So, so I understand that it's a concern, but it should be an informed consent process. And the parents should be able to then get that information like I just explained it to you. And then they can decide which risk they really rather take. Right. And that's not the way it works in medicine. You're coerced into believing you. If you don't get it, your baby could have a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that's not untrue, but it's really skewed how they say it. Because right. your baby could have a serious problem, but the, but what doctor? What's the actual risk of my baby having a serious problem? Oh, it's one in sixteen thousand. And that would say, and what's the risk of vitamin K? And they'll say none. That's what they'll say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you know I don't know what the real risks of vitamin K are, but again, you're giving an injection to a newborn of with foreign substances in this little body that just came out, that's a little, just trying to figure out the world, and you're already sticking a needle in its, in its thigh. Why? And then, of course, mo- mom and dad who don't have chlamydia or gonorrhea, and hospitals are still wanting to put eye goop, usually erythromycin, in the baby's eyes. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? It's to prevent an eye infection from chlamydia or gonorrhea. But they don't have chlamydia or gonorrhea. Well, how do you know? How do you know the husband wasn't cheating on the wife? I mean, this is, these are things that people say. And again, we realize that every one of these things I'm describing that the hospital wants to do, they can bill for. Yeah. You, don't, you can't bill for doing nothing. <laughs> and the hospital makes more money with the cascade of interventions leading to a C-section than it does on a vaginal delivery. And one of the things that I would love to see happen, but somehow I don't understand insurance companies, you'd think they'd want to save money. So why not pay 50% more for a vaginal delivery and pay 75% less for a cesarean section? Right. Suddenly you'd find hospitals supportive of the back and supportive of breach delivery. Mm-hmm. The reason they're not supportive now is because all the financial incentives are backwards. And, and again, when you're a busy doctor and you come out of residence, you don't think, you're not thinking about this stuff. You're just doing what you're told or what you're taught or what you think is right. 
because I know lots of my colleagues who, who give these vaccines to pregnant women and insist on vitamin And they um, are good people. They're lovely people. And they just do it anyway. And that gets into the point of where there's true cognitive dissonance because it would be really hard for somebody to actually say to themselves, I have been harming people all these years. Mm-hmm. And so they can't do that. And you, and you probably talked about, you guys probably talk about that on your show. That I mean, Peter McCullough talks about that, why mm-hmm. doctors are still doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the alternative is to th- is unthinkable, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, shoot, powerful stuff. Wow. Shelby, do you have any other questions or any other final thoughts or anything? No, I just I appreciate you um, you speaking the truth about the real the yeah. real like uh, the real truth that women should know and and men and husbands and everybody just um, to protect women in birth. And I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing and. Where can people uh, find you? And, and are you still practicing? Or you said I heard you said you weren't on call anymore. But. <laughs> no, I, I'm still I'm still I'm still licensed in California, and I'm licensed in Utah, where I live now. Uh, awesome. But I don't I don't have a regular clinical practice. I, I travel a lot, and I teach seminars, and I teach mostly in the United States. But I I sometimes go all over the world. I was just in Ireland and England, cool. and uh, I'm going to Australia in 2024. And I'll be teaching, but I but I do I do a lot of teaching, and so it's you to be uh, to have a client that's pregnant, you have to sort of be available for about three or four weeks mm-hmm. at the end because pregnancy is not in our world. Pregnancy is not predictable, and in, in the medical world, you know, you said somebody has to go golfing, then they, <laughs> they will bring you into the, that's a bad example though because that that's that's not the greatest example, but. There is an increased rate of cesarean sections at like seven in the morning and five or six in the afternoon. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Before exactly. holidays. When they're, and... Yeah, their shift ends and stuff. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. they want to go home to dinner, right? Exactly. Or they want to get the baby delivered before they end up going to um, going to their office. So people can reach me at birthinginstincts.com, which is my website. Mm-hmm. And we also have a, a podcast Podcast. called Birthing Instincts Podcast. Fellow podcaster, uh, shout out. Say it again. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Podcast. You know the you know the routine. You know the drill. Yeah. You know, you know what's guys. funny is I, I started my podcast in 2013. <laughs> yeah. You. I've noticed you've been around for a while. You're like you're the OG. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Uh, my my first uh, my first co-host was is a, was a radio talk show guy in Los Angeles. Yeah. And we were out for we were out for breakfast one morning, and he got me going on one of my rants. And he just looked at me and he goes, "Stu." We got to do a podcast. Yeah, and I went. To, I looked at him. I go, "What's what the hell is a podcast?" I didn't even know what a podcast <laughs> was. And he got me started, and then and then it's sort of taken off with my co-host Bliss Young, who's a midwife, uh, an extraordinary woman. That's amazing. And there's we have a website birthinginstinctpodcast.com, and we also have a Patreon now. Oh, cool! Uh, which we're just starting. Just started last week, uh, where people cool. can come, and we have extra content, and we do live sessions with our members and. You know, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to being able to sit and and just even talk to the, talk to my own camera for five minutes and then have a place to post it other than Instagram, which is at Birthing Instincts on Instagram. I don't tweet and I don't do that sort of stuff. Oh, thanks, guys. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you guys are on top of stuff here. I didn't get this. I'll make sure to add this to the episode description. But, yeah, folks, if you want to follow uh, Dr. Fishbein more, you can find him. There's links in the episode. Um, I'll add this podcast link, Birthing Instincts. Pluralpodcast.com, and then I put the Instagram link on there as well. So. 
Yeah, and my, and my message to end on a positive note is for women to just uh, know that they're, trust their intuition, trust your body. Don't, you know, it, you'll, it'll make your whole life better. It'll make you raising your children better. And, and you can do this. And you just have to seek it out. Uh, you guys are spinning. You always are spinning. These little, yeah, there's little pauses in the radio. Um, but you have to do a little legwork. Yeah, yeah, what was the fireworks for? I don't, I don't know. know. We discovered this right before we went on air, but this program that we're using, if you give it two thumbs up, it creates fireworks. Like, I don't Just know. for you? Look, do another Oh, my God. It doesn't it. work for me. Oh, well, I don't care. Like right in front of the camera. Look at that. Shelby, you could do it, too. Anyway. I don't think so. What about peace signs? What does it do with nope. peace we don't do anything. It's just look, you. Look, I got like confetti. Like, no, just your, just <laughs> yours. It's hilarious. You're no. celebrating. Yeah. You're celebrating. No. Side, right. So, yeah. So just, I mean, I want to, I want to tell women, look at some women really want medical care. They want an epidural. They, they're afraid and that's, that's fine. But you can start to educate yourself early on. Um, mm -hmm. Find it. Don't wait till you're pregnant to try to find a practitioner. This is do, do your homework. Mm -hmm. We should be teaching high school girls this stuff. Mm -hmm. We should bring back birth and death into the, into the home, into the family when you, when you can. I mean, most Americans will go through their entire life not seeing a baby born or not seeing anyone die. And yet everyone's born and everyone dies. Mm -hmm. So how, how, what did we do? We made it in an industry. We, 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 we corporatized it all. And yeah. there's something wrong with that. And I hope that we begin to change... I think we all got gaslit enough. I mean, we've been gaslit for a hundred years, but um, the last three years have been, it's been clarifying. Yeah. And for people who haven't woken up from that, uh, they'll never wake up. But if we can increase the rate of home birth, even double it to two and a half percent, three percent, that would be a huge thing. And then slowly but surely, we can then have an effect on changing the medical industrial complex um, to a more loving, warming uh, uh, situation for, for birth. Because pregnancy is not an illness. It can become one, but it's just because you're pregnant, you're not ill. And if you have that mentality, then you can seek out like-minded practitioners. And midwifery is a way to go. Unfortunately, right now, we still don't have enough midwives to, for everybody, but at, at some point. And then we have to be really careful because the midwifery schools are starting to become medicalized. Oh, geez. And, of course, they're you know, going to yeah, 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 yeah. No doubt. So we have to we have to watch out because they they again they have their hands in everything, yeah, and they have the money and they have the power and it's their football and they can decide whether we want to play or not. But we don't have to play; we go start our own game. That's <laughs> it. That's what we're doing over That's here. Exactly in what we're doing. <laughs> I, know I, I know you are. I I. I sort of started listening to you guys ever since you invited me on and it's been it's been fun to listen and see who your guests are and and oh, thank you we're honored I'm honored to be part of that uh, uh, to be asked to be on and to talk oh. and to speak to your audience so thank you guys yeah of course well, thank you we'll keep up the amazing work. yeah yeah did you hear yeah, that and I hope, we hope that hopefully our injected um, population will grow so big that we can help double or triple home birthing just ourselves we'll just work towards injected it. babies <laughs> We're going to repopulate with a bunch of home birth injected babies. That's the plan. That's right. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And eating better food and all the, all of the other things cool. that you probably have those guests on too. 100%. Yeah. Like 100%. Right. 
Perfect. Uh, thank you so right. much. Thank you, Dr. Fishbein. And uh, yeah, you guys just catch us on injected.com, injected.com. Oh, yeah, obviously, injected.com, injected official. Yep. And stay natural and stay yep. free. Stay injected. All right, guys. Until next time. <laughs>